coming up on Garden Talk. In the hierarchy of needs of IPM, the big chunk of that is the first layer, is that defensive layer, those passive approaches. And after a certain point, you know, it gets diluted just from humidity in the air, and it ends up just being a basin of a virus rather than a sterilizing basin or just general stunting. It reduces yields by up to 55% in some cases, and it's really devastating some of these industries where it's hopped over to. There's just a few days of dry soil, you can damage them and then do that over the next week. If there's a handful of days where the soil is really dry, it'll really damage that population. It's really important to start off with a holistic approach to gardening in general and pest management in particular. What's up, everybody? If you that don't know me, my name is Chris, aka Mr. Grow It, and you're tuned into the Garden Talk podcast. This episode number 83. In this episode, I interview Simon Kepchar, the founder and CEO of Interlight. He has a significant amount of knowledge when it comes to pest management, viruses, and viroids, and that's what we're going to get into in today's episode. Thanks to all of you who support this podcast through Patreon. If you'd like to support, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash mrgrowit. Before we get into it, I want to acknowledge that one of my goals for this podcast is to bring zero cost for information about gardening all plants to the general public. That being said, I'd like to thank the sponsors of today's episode who helped make that goal possible. Thanks to VivoSun for sponsoring this episode. VivoSun recently released the Smart Grow System. The Smart Grow System helps streamline the growing process by automating stage of growth requirements, on and off schedules, spectral range, airflow and circulation, and even records useful data about your environment. It is Wi-Fi capable and connects to the VivoSun app, so you can control your grow space from your smartphone. Check out their website at vivosun.com. I will provide a link in the YouTube description section below. AC Infinity is sponsoring this episode. They have two different series LED grow lights, the Ion Board and the Ion Grid. The Ion Board fixtures are board style and use Samsung LM301B diodes, while the Ion Grid series has an open center design and uses Samsung LM301H diodes. I'll have a link in the description section below so you can learn more about these grow lights. And you can use discount code MrGrowIt if you're buying off their website, acinfinity.com. That discount code works for all AC Infinity items. Or discount code MrGrowIt15 if you're buying off Amazon. And we are back. Welcome to the Garden Talk podcast. Today I am joined with Simon from Interlight. How are you doing today? Good. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for asking. So super pumped on what we have to talk about today. We're going to be talking about some pests and pathogens. So lots of good information. You have a ton of experience in regards to those things. But before we get deep into the topics, can you do an introduction? Tell us a little bit about yourself and kind of how you got into gardening. Yeah, sure. So like you said, I'm Simon Kepchar, currently with Intralight, uh, which is a new next-gen crop protection uh, company that I'm the founder of. Um, but for years, for most of my life, I've been very interested in agriculture, um, starting out with uh, permaculture, organic gardening, um, food forests, and things like that. Uh, but later in my life, I started to do uh, IPM consulting for just general agriculture out here in Colorado, um, which led me to eventually uh, develop the Intralight technology and see if we can push crop protection into the future a little bit. Sweet. Pretty straightforward there. 
So let's get into IPM. And I have a lot of people that are beginners that tune in my podcast. They may not know what IPM is. So let's start off with the basics. What is IPM and what IPM methods do you use in your guard? Yeah, well, I think IPM is perfect for beginners because it's really important to start off with a holistic approach to gardening in general and pest management in particular. So IPM stands for integrated pest management. That means rather than the sort of historic approach where we plant a field, we say we know we're going to get pests, we're just going to wait until eventually we see a massive infestation, and then we'll go head-to-head and fight it with some powerful chemicals. With IPM, Integrated Pest Management, we prepare and we look at all of the methods that we have at our disposal, and we use them uh, in advance to an infestation. We prepare, we scout, we identify, and then we treat. Um, and it's sort of, in IPM, you build a hierarchy of, uh, of requirements for fighting, fighting uh, pests. So you start with general protective measures, sort of defensive strategies. You start with, let's have standard operating procedures to have really clean environments. Let's have resistant crops. You know, let's uh, not necessarily, if we can, let's not do a monoculture. You know, let's have multiple crops uh, in our fields or in our gardens. Then we look at sort of a higher level approach. Let's keep our eyes out. Let's learn how to identify crops or pests and let's learn how to scout our garden and make sure that we see any signs of infestations early so that we can fight them uh, sort of passively and not have to do this massive battle against an existing infestation. So in terms of IPM uh, approaches, I really recommend what you first need to do is you need to lay out and understand all possible strategies that you have at your disposal, how they synergize with one another, and how they perhaps have uh, anti-synergies with one another, so you can really pick and choose what you need to deploy. Um, So these include defensive things like just building up like physically, physical barriers, you know, protecting your crops if you're indoors, sealing their grow environment, um, to things like traps, um, you know, foot baths, sterilization, keeping things clean, um, all the way to active, uh, active uh, crop protection techniques like obviously the spraying and application of chemicals, the introduction of beneficial pests or beneficial insects, and um, everything like that, even to higher technology like intralight light treatments. So what techniques do you use in your garden? Well, I'm a little bit biased, so I mainly use the intralight uh, technology that I've been developing. So uh, I use that in combination with just what I consider standard operating practices of, you know, quarantining the environment off, you know, cordoning it off from the general environment. You really need to be in control of what comes in and out of your in and out of your garden if you can. Personally, I have an indoor little vertical farm where I mainly garden, so it's easy for me to to control it. Um, but I would say uh, if I was still doing an outdoor garden, it would be a, I would do a similar approach where I just try to lock it down um, as much as I can through physical barriers, layers of diatomaceous earth, and uh, just proactive passive approaches so that you don't have to go in and attack an infestation so you can just prevent it from ever happening or identify it early. Um, so those really include 
traps, barriers, um, passive systems like beneficials, uh, beneficial biologics, and in my case, the intralight solution. Let's get into the intralight a little bit because, uh, you know, people are hearing that and they're like, what the heck is intralight? So yeah. <laughs> talk to us about what it is. It's a light, right? Where it's basically shining on to your plant or your medium. And it's actually, is it killing off pests entirely? Mm -hmm. So intralight's a radical new approach to crop protection technology. The best way that I think, uh, the most intuitive way to understand it is to say, why is it that uh, insects in particular are always on the underside of your leaves? You know, we're not, when we look for signs of infestation, we may see stippling on the top of a leaf and then we flip it over and we see a bunch of spider mites or aphids or thrips or whatever. Why is it that they're living on the underside of leaves? The reason is because they're protecting themselves from harmful rays of the sun. These are the same rays of the sun that would cause us to have skin cancer after being exposed to the sun for many decades. Now, intralight focuses those, uh, the specific parts of the spectrum that are pesticidal and we attenuate them and modulate them and send them targeted at the insects um, and at pathogens at a very specific intensity and dosage. Uh, this allows us to damage the DNA of pests and pathogens without harming the plants themselves. This DNA damage builds up and will eventually collapse their population or keep them below uh, economically impactful levels. Um, and obviously I am biased. I'll try not to um, just uh, shill for intralight too much, um, but I do believe that it's a, it's a highly effective crop protection technology and it sort of uh, eliminates the need for sort of ammunition of, uh, you know, you have to have these, these chemicals constantly being applied or you have to have these beneficials constantly being applied. Intralight is just a one-time purchase where you don't need to continually supply it, um, which synergizes with these IPM approaches where in the hierarchy of needs of IPM, the big chunk of that is the first layer, is that defensive layer, those passive approaches, um, which just prevent you from having to use these extreme approaches uh, like direct chemical application. Okay, and then if you have like a full-blown infestation how quickly will the intralight kind of kill off that population? So it depends on the life cycle of the, the, of the pests. Luckily, most of their life cycles are pretty quick. So because we're dealing in DNA damage, it's not likely that we'll kill, we won't kill an insect exposed to the intralight pesticidal spectrum. What we'll do is tear up their DNA and reduce their ability to reproduce, hatch, or mature. So it sort of depends, like if, if, if we were dealing with something that had a multi-year lifespan, it would, it would take years for us to collapse the population. But because we're dealing with something that has a few day lifespan or at least parts of its life cycle that's measured in days or weeks, it's pretty easy for us to collapse populations within 7 to 14 days for things like spider mites and aphids and uh, sternorinca in general and thrips. Okay, got it. I'll definitely have a link to Intralight website down in the description section below. I know you said, uh, you know, you didn't want to make this whole video about like a sales pitch for it. And uh, good thing because my audience would sniff that out and call that out. <laughs> They're pretty funny when it comes to that. So I'll do my best. Uh, it is, it's just, uh, I have to sort of edit it out when I think of what is your most effective uh, IPM solutions. I have to say, okay, let's let's not talk about Intralight. Let's talk about the others. And there are many tried and true crop protection technologies outside of Intralight uh, that I'm definitely a huge proponent of. You know, I love me some diatomaceous earth, love neem oil, that uh, that spaghetti squash smell of some neem, freshly sprayed neem oil, and I'm, I'm all for it. And later on in this episode, we will get into 
some of the pests that you could face in your garden and how to tackle them. So uh, first, I do want to get into more of like the viroids, viruses, pathogens that are around and doing some damage to people's crops. But before we get into that, I know one of the main things that kind of spread viruses and viroids is not cleaning tools properly. So I do want to get into detail about the the proper cleaning of tools. Then we'll get into the viruses and viroids and so on and so forth. So what is the best way to actually clean your tools or sanitize your tools? Trimmers, for example, that's one of the things that a lot of people use. And I've heard as simple as just wiping it down with isopropyl alcohol and you're good to go. Other people say that that's not effective and that you should actually be using hydrogen peroxide in a soak for a certain period of time. Talk to us about the best way to clean and sanitize tools. So in terms of the actual ranking of hydrogen peroxide, alcohol solution, bleach bleach solution, they're all highly effective at killing viruses. The question is just what does, you know, you have to imagine that tool is entirely covered. Its surface is covered in really virulent viruses that can, in some cases, they can last on there for multiple months. So while wiping it down is very effective, the question is, you know, are you wiping down 10, uh, 10 sets of uh, trimming scissors? And are you sort of going quickly on the last one and missing those crevices? Uh, so that's why an actual soak can be more effective. However, one the thing with soaks that I really find uh, people fall behind in is that it's easy to, you might have this like jar of alcohol or this basin of alcohol that you soak your tools in. And some people will just leave the same thing of a container of alcohol or, or whatever sterilizing agent they have, they'll just leave it there for multiple days and they'll reuse it and reuse it. And after a certain point, you know, it gets diluted just from humidity in the air and it ends up just being a basin of a virus rather than a sterilizing basin. So I would say that a short soak is probably the most effective solution. Um, in whatever you're most comfortable with or what's, whatever is most red, readily available to you, bleach solution, alcohol solution, or hydrogen peroxide solution, I would recommend a brief soak and then removing them from that basin, cleaning them, and then regularly refreshing that basin. Not necessarily every day, but at least every couple of days. Um, we see this in large-scale greenhouses and large-scale warehouse um, indoor grows where they have a foot basin that everyone steps in. To, uh, to sterilize their shoes. And, you know, it's sort of an easy thing to fall behind on. You're doing a bunch of things, you're busy. It's kind of the last thing that you think of is, oh, I need to refill that foot basin. And then after a week, it becomes the spreader of, of pathogens. So it's just important to be on top of that. And then how often should people be cleaning their tools? I mean, some people doing it after every cut, some people only doing it after each plant. What's your mm -hmm. recommendation? So unfortunately, it's really, really regularly, really, really consistently. It's not each cut, but it's each plant. Because when we're dealing with these viruses, they're transferring from one plant to another through just physical, you cut it, there's virus in that plant, it's now on your scissors, and then when you cut the next plant, you're infecting that plant. So it's not every cut when you're on one plant, but between two plants, you should clean your tools, and it could be just a quick but effective thorough wiping, um, as well as, you know, even just changing your gloves and being very careful, you know, a way to helpfully understand how serious and how long lasting these virus particles can be 
consider tobacco mosaic virus, there are cases where a, all of these standard operating procedures are in place, but a worker goes outside and smokes a cigarette. And on in that cigarette, living after you know years of drying is a tobacco mosaic virus that gets on their hands and then contaminates um, the tobacco grow. So it's it's very virulent. I would say be overly uh, overly cautious. Okay, and then one last question on cleaning tools. I like to get into the nitty gritty uh, of things. So you've got your trimmers. You, you soak it in hydrogen peroxide, for example. When you take those trimmers out, are you going right in for the next cut, or are you like wiping it down with like a paper towel or some sort of a towel? I would wipe it down with a towel, but you have to be careful to you know if you have the same towel that you're using over and over again, you're going to just be spreading continually spreading. So I would say. If, if it was just me personally, I'm taking a handful of cuts. It's a relatively small number. It's, you know, five to 10 plants. I would say, why don't you just have two or three sets of scissors? Okay, you use the first one. You take some cuts, soak it for the 10 or 15 minutes while you're taking a next set of cuts with a fresh pair of scissors. Then you can switch it out, take them out of the hydrogen peroxide, wipe them down with a clean wipe and with fresh gloves. And then you're very sure that you're clean from... Um, for many viruses being present. Um, but of course, there are ways to simply in, uh, insulate your plants from ever being infected by viruses as they're mechanically transferred. Um, you can sort of, uh, if you were to test, if you're cloning, for example, you would be able to test your mothers and determine we're free of viruses. And then you could sort of uh, be a little bit, uh, a little bit safer uh, without doing these really intense cleaning regimens, as long as you're on top of what is coming in and out of your uh, your grow or your garden. Got it. That's pretty straightforward. Okay, let's get into some viroids and viruses. Let's start with hop latent viroid disease. What is that? So uh, hop latent viroid or uh, what is it? HPLVD. It's, uh, the the uh, acronyms are getting a little bit long at this point, but um, basically this is a virus that was probably sitting around in hops for, you know, who knows, many, many decades. In hops, as the name implies, it's latent. It doesn't do anything in hops. It doesn't cause any symptoms. It just sits around. They're just an asymptomatic carrier. But uh, recently it hopped over, uh, sorry for the pun, it uh, moved over from hops to the very close uh, genetic, uh, closely related species. Um, you know, newly deregulated medicinal plants where it hopped over and it contaminated those, uh, those crops where it is not simply latent virus anymore. Now it is very damaging. It causes uh, what's called dudding or just general stunting. Um, it reduces yields by, you know, up to 55% in some cases. And it's really devastating some of these industries where it's hopped over to. Uh, <laughs> apologies again for the puns. But uh, this is something that really came out of the blue around half a decade ago. So there was not good standard operating procedures to protect against it. And by the time it was noticed, it was all across North America, uh, causing these serious uh, economic harms. Now, if we, this is why IPM is such an important thing for everyone to take into account and why you've got to look at these systems holistically. Because if we were using an IPM mindset, we would be prepared for this. You know, we would say, oh, well, it hasn't come into my grow yet because I look at this basic layer of defense and I say, well, if I invest in that, you know, I don't have to deal with these huge, huge costs of fighting something like this after it comes in, comes into play. 
Okay. And those cleaning techniques that you mentioned a little while ago, that'll help prevent it, right? Or, or resolve the issue, right? So if they're doing cuts exactly. on a plant that has hop latent viroid disease and they go ahead and do that soak, wipe off the trimmers, go to their next plant, it should not have spread to the next plant. Is that correct? Exactly. It, it wouldn't spread over. So if you, uh, the, the real issue is bringing in a clone and saying, oh, this, we you know, we need to grow this clone. And then you grow that mother and then all of its, uh, all of its subsequent offspring have this virus. And then that's just increasing the likelihood that it's going to be spread from one plant to another. But crucially, these viruses are spread mechanically. They're spread physically. In the case of uh, like tobacco mosaic, it can be literally leaves rubbing against each other. Luckily, hoplatin virus isn't necessarily that uh, virulent, but it's important to note when we're discussing this, this is very, a very new virus in reality. You know, five years ago it was last detected, you know, three years ago it really began being studied. So we don't necessarily know 100% on some of these things, but it is physically transferred. Uh, so you can prevent that through standard operating procedures. So it can certainly be on clones. Uh, I've heard it can also be on seeds. Is that true or, or not true? Yes, yeah, certainly it's it's debatable. This is another thing that we don't really know. Anecdotally, it certainly ha there's an idea that it's spread on seeds. I think it's clear that if it can be on any surface, obviously it can be on the surface of a seed. Uh, there is some research showing that it will not actually be in the seed uh, from the pollinating plant. Like if the pollinating plant had the virus, um, but the plant that's being pollinated and, and is growing the seeds doesn't have the virus, then it's not going to be transferred in the pollen. Um, but obviously if that seed is grown within a, a virally infected plant, it is going to be at least coated. Um, so there are things that we can do to fight this. We can uh, clean our seeds and we can heat or, or freeze the seeds to kill this virus. But that's a uh, you know, it's been related to a sort of a chemotherapy approach where it's like, this is a, this is a harmful medicine. You know, it can cause, uh, cause a lot of damage. So it's, it can certainly be spread by the seeds. And this is why it's kind of a frightening, frightening thing to fight. Talk a little bit deeper about the, the cleaning of the seeds that you mentioned. You said, uh, two things. What was it? Uh, clean the seeds and then heat the seeds. Yeah, so you can um, heat or cool them. And there's actually been some tests on, you know, can we take a plant that's infested with this virus? What if we just heat it up a lot? What if we cool it down a lot? Can we just kill off the virus? It's the same approach um, that we, our bodies would take when infested with a pathogen, right? We would get a fever. We would raise our body temperature to a place where that virus wouldn't be able to live. Now, in the uh, instances of these crops, these heating levels have been, have caused like 50% kill rates um, in the plants themselves. So it's really severe levels of heat that's required. Um, in, in, in seeds, it's a little bit easier to just freeze them um, and not damage them too badly, but these effects are always going to be kind of harmful, kind of last minute resorts. Um, you could do a seed soak in like a very slight, you know, a seed wipe with a very slight bit of alcohol. But again, these are you're sort of coming close to the line of damaging these things. It's best just to start with non-infected seeds, right? Yeah, absolutely. So how do you detect hoplite and viroid disease? Is there like testing that can be done or is there physical characteristics that somebody could see on the plant to determine whether they have it or not? And once they realize they have it, how do they get rid of it? So there's both. 
Um, in terms of testing, it's uh, really laboratory testing. It's actually a PCR test, uh, polymerase chain reaction test. This is the same test that we learned about a lot over COVID. Um, luckily, because we've experienced this pandemic, not you know, not that there's a you know, it was a terrible, terrible event for all of humanity, but it was very educational. Um, and now we understand a little bit more about how sneaky viruses can be and how difficult they can be to fight and uh, how we need to just instead prevent them. So in terms of detecting them, there are asymptomatic um, plants that will just be spreaders that you can only determine if you're actually taking a bit, uh, taking a, uh, a tissue sample and sending it to a lab to be tested. Um, but the symptomatic plants, you will be able to, to identify them. Now, this is a little bit more tricky um, and really you need to be experienced with it to quickly identify it, but it's, it's stunting and what's called dudding. It's just, you know, a it's sort of similar to an overwatering reaction um, where this plant just looks unhappy. They're very brittle stems. They're uh, sort of, there's an excess splaying of leaves or of stems. And there's just general very slow growth um, and very, very reduced growth. So I think it's it's unfortunate because there's um, some people who you might go in and say, hey, you're just a bad gardener. You're just doing bad here. These plants looking happy. And he's like, oh, I don't know what to do. I don't know. I don't know what it is. I'm trying my best. And it's, it's well, maybe you have uh, this full infestation that you haven't been able to test, but it just shows up as stunting and, you know, 50% reductions in, in yield and things like this. So that's really the main, uh, the main sign is stunted plants. If you have you know, a couple of plants and one of them is just looking really sad and stunted, I would consider being very careful around it. Uh, if you have the means, send off a tissue sample for testing. Um, and also you can just test all mothers is really the thing to do. Do you have a recommended lab that they should send the tissue samples to? And how much does that cost? Not a specific lab. Any any testing lab is going to be able to pretty easily do these tests. Um, and it's, it's not super expensive, but the thing is, you know, it's less than $100 per uh, each tissue sample, but the thing is, you know, in a large operation, you might have uh, you might have dozens or hundreds of tissue samples. That's really where it becomes problematic. All right, let's move on to tomato brown rugose fruit virus. Did I pronounce that one right? Rugose. 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 Okay. <laughs> uh, with the uh, uh, T O B R F V, the really the acronym that's getting a little bit silly, and we need to just just we can just call it rugose virus. You know. Um, but yeah, another another virus very similar to the story of uh, the hoplaten viroid. So this is one that we're not sure where it came from, but it occurred um, around half a decade ago in Jordan and Israel in uh, pepper and tomato uh, greenhouses, and it causes you know a lot of die off, a lot of really bad um, reductions in yield for both tomatoes and peppers, and it's precisely the same in terms of the way that it spreads as, um, as hop latent virus or, or as a tobacco mosaic virus. That is mechanical transfer. So you can simply prevent it um, by identifying it early. Luckily, it's a lot easier to, fit, to identify it by sight. Um, and there have been some cases where it's come over to the United States and it's been found in places like uh, California, Arizona, and Florida, but it's been locked down. They've said, we have this, we're going to cut down every plant in this greenhouse. We're going to sterilize everything. We're going to throw out the soil. We're going to clean all of our tools. And supposedly it's been contained in those situations. Um, it's kind of debatable. It's probably is floating around out there, but uh, it's a very serious concern. 
much like a hoplite and viroid. And can you do the similar testing that you mentioned for hoplite to where you can send off a tissue sample to a laboratory and pay a certain amount to get it tested? Precisely. So it's, uh, it's, we're fairly good at testing for viruses and with the, in the case of rugose, it's uh, pretty apparent. So you'll have your fruit be uh, yellowed and have large lesions all over the fruit. Um, hence the brown term, but uh, you also have yellowing and die off of leaves. So it's a little more, it's a little more aggressive than the hoplite and viroid. So it's easier to see earlier on, um, but it is very similar. Uh, one thing to note is that we can, there are situations where if we had a really crucial uh, cultivar, uh, you know, very specific strain of tomatoes that we really want to serve, we really want to live, we've put in a lot of investment into breeding it, uh, but it's infected um, and we have to kill it. There are uh, situations where you can find certain tissue in that plant that is not infected, namely like very new growth. Um, and you can take a little sample of that and uh, you can culture it, clone it through culturing um, and save that strain. It's the same with a hoplite and viroid. Okay. So there's no way of actually like nursing it back to life. It would just be, it's infected with the virus. You got to kill it off unless you can get some yeah. of that new growth tissue off of that and, and continue on. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's really a situation where you could struggle through and accept uh, like a 50% loss in yield. But I would say you have to think about the, the industry as a whole, especially in tomatoes. I mean, everybody else is going to be pretty upset with you if you if you don't just destroy a, a tomato greenhouse that's infested because it will be spreading uh, to the industry as a whole. So this is what we see with tobacco mosaic virus. It's just endemic at this point. We've been dealing with it for a, a hundred years and it's not going anywhere. Um, we're at a point with to, uh, Rugos for tomatoes where can, you know, we're still insulated here in America from it. We conceivably, we can still perhaps through really good operating practices, prevent it or at least hold it off for many years until we can uh, find a more effective way to actually fight it. But in terms of curing a plant that's infected with it, it's, that's, it's not going to happen. Um, perhaps these extreme hot and cold therapies, but even then, um, you know, you may just be slowing this down. You mentioned TMV a couple times. I'd like to get a little bit deeper into that. Uh, you did a brief explanation of it. Is there anything more to say about like what TMV is and kind of how to go about detecting it and preventing it? Right. Well, I would say it's something really to look to because these new viruses that we're talking about in tomatoes and in, in medicinal crops, these are less than half a decade old. The research has not been done. The, the really quick identification has not been developed yet. So I would say um, mosaic virus is one that you can look to and you can say, here's a century of research. You know, dig into that and you, you can really, it can help you to prepare and you can take those operating practices over, which really are what we've been talking about. They're just heavy sterilization processes, careful sterilization. In the, in the case of large tobacco crops, it's... Um, when the soil is infected, when there's contaminated soil and you can't just throw it out because it's the ground, um, you do crop rotation where a field will be fallow for up to two years to actually really let that virus die off before you come back to that field. So I would say it's, it's a very good uh, resource to look to, to sort of train yourself and see what has this industry done over a hundred years to deal with what is now an endemic virus. All right. And then I imagine one of the easy ways to prevent it is just not to smoke around your plants, right? Uh, is this only cigarettes or is it anything else you smoke as well? 
it's these viruses are very very virulent they're happy to live on the surfaces of something so it's 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 hard to understand but even in the case of when a plant is dried, you know, broken down, rolled up, put in a cigarette and smoked later, there can still be one or two virus particles on there that get on your hand, that get on your face, and then you transfer to your crop. So yeah, I would say it applies generally uh, beyond just tobacco. It's something to watch out for. It's something that is not confirmed or denied as it were, but it's, you know, it's just best operating procedures to be careful. I made the mistake in the past of confusing TMV with variegation. And so they, mm -hmm. I, apparently they look very similar. One yeah. is just a natural occurring thing in the plant. The other is an actual virus. Is there any right. easier way to kind of, you know, separate the two so people don't get confused? Yeah, I would say, you know, variegation, it's funny because it's actually a very valuable trait, even in some, um, in, uh, fl uh floriculture. And so if you get a breed of, uh, roses, for example, with variegation, you can, uh, make a pretty penny off of it. But I would say it's this is a, a holistic approach where you say, okay, I'm seeing this variegation. I let's put it in the back of my mind. Maybe it's mosaic, but let's let's wait until we see some other symptoms show up as well. Some stunting if there's variegation and stunting. You know, if there's uh, if there's variegation and, and lesions occurring, um, or if it's very s small modeled variegation. You know, typical genetic variegation will be. Uh, like larger swaths of sort of lighter colored versus darker colored mosaic will be really tight, tight little, uh, tight little differentiations in color, almost to the point of like stippling from a bad spider mite infestation. But uh... let's transition over into pests. There are so many different pests that gardeners can come across as they are on their journey. And there are a lot of common ones that come up more often than others. Let's start with fungus gnats. This is one that I have been battling so much over the past 12 plus years. And uh, they are certainly a pest. They're a nuisance. They can rapidly increase the population. Talk to us about fungus gnats. What are they? How do you prevent them? And if you do have a full-blown infestation, what can you do? Yeah, such a frustrating pest. I mean, really, you're correct calling it a nuisance. I personally get so frustrated when I have just gnats just buzzing around. They're they're incredibly frustrating, and you know this is an insect that, unlike uh, other insects that thrive on the undersides of leaves, they're thriving down in the soil. So they're much harder to identify ahead of time, much harder to actively treat. You have to do a, a root flush rather than just spraying something. So it's very. Uh, they're a very frustrating plant. I mean, I would say this comes back to, if you look at the, the pyramid of, uh, you know, of, of priorities for IPM, when you, the bottom of the pyramid, the largest segment is just do preventative passive maintenance. I would say that really comes into play with fungus gnats because they're a species that thrive in wet soil. So I would say, First of all, just really proper drainage, which may be difficult in the cases of um, rockwool cubes, but really proper drainage. You can look at things like air pots, things like elevating pots, and just uh, or um, fabric pots, excuse me. And then not uh, not overwatering. If you're in a drip irrigation system, this is kind of impossible to avoid. But I would really recommend, there's some people who are very big proponents of allowing plants to fully dry before next watering is applied. And with the quick life cycle of, um, of fungus gnats, like we talked about with the intralight solution, our best application, our most efficient application is when there are short life cycles. It's the same thing with allowing roots to really dry out. 
um, because there's such a quick life cycle of, uh, of fungus gnats that if there's just a few days of dry soil, you can damage them and then do that over the next uh, over the next week. If there's a handful of days where the soil is really dry, you'll really damage that population. Okay. I know you mentioned diatomaceous earth in the past. It's one thing that, that you mm -hmm. like to do, and that can definitely help do some damage on the fungus gnats. Can you talk deeper about diatomaceous earth? Like how much do you apply? When do you apply? What does it actually do to the fungus gnats? Yeah, diatomaceous earth is a really interesting one. You know, so uh, diatomaceous meaning uh, from diatoms. So really it, it's, it's an incredible thing because this is a – a mineral, a sort of a mineral that's actually the skeletons of um, ancient little tiny creatures that have silica skeletons that are now just uh, huge sand deposits of fossils of ancient microorganisms that are essentially incredibly spiky microscopic balls of silica. Silica, obviously silica gel that you get in your uh, shoebox, it absorbs water. So the actual method of, uh, of the kill method of diatomaceous earth is uh, pretty dark. Um, you know, it's a, uh, it, it'll get stuck in the joints of, um, an insect or, you know, in, in the skin of a, of a larva. And it, those tiny little sharp corners will slice the skin or slice into the creature. And then the silica naturally will suck water out and just desiccate the creature. So it's, but crucially, it's a physical method of killing this uh, insect. So there's no no kind of contamination. Diatomaceous earth is totally okay to be exposed to. You don't want to inhale a ton of it, but um, there's some people will, will eat some of it um, to supposedly clean out uh, parasites inside their own bodies. So it's very safe for humans and it's very easy uh, to apply. So in terms of application rates, for something like, um, for something like fungus gnats, I would just use this as a preventative, apply a thin layer of diatomaceous earth to the top of your soil or to the top of your medium, and then just keep an eye on it. Um, you know, as you water it, it will get sort of moved around and knocked down to that soil. So when it looks like, you know, there's not much left, go ahead and apply another thin layer just to, you don't need to do a thick layer of diatomaceous earth. I mean, if you're, if any insect walks over it, it's going to be stuck in them and they are going to, they're going to die. So you don't need some kind of really thick layer of it which is why it's so nice to use. Um, you can use sort of a sprayer um, to apply it directly to leaves. Uh, I've never really been a big fan of that. It's just kind of awkward um, and uh, not super effective. But if you did have a really big infestation, uh, you could do some little dousing of diatomaceous to fight that. Okay. And there are so many different sprays that can be used as well, right? I mean, I've used so much over the years, everything from hydrogen peroxide, which apparently harms the larva. Uh, I mean, I tried bleach that didn't do anything. Uh, alcohol is another home remedy that you read up online, but those things really didn't help me, to be honest with you. A couple of things that did help was Dr. Zymes, which is like an all natural proprietary blend. Uh, I think it's just of essential oils. It could be something else that that had helped reduce the population. I also recently picked up Mammoth Can Control, which is a corn oil and a thyme oil. That has greatly helped reduce the population. So, you know, we could sit here and talk about fungus gnats for the next 30 minutes if we really wanted to. There are a ton of different solutions that people can explore on preventing and battling fungus gnats. So I just wanted to say that one. Mm -hmm. Certainly things like Green Cleaner and those essential oil-based ones are really effective if you're if you feel like I need to apply a spray 
these other solutions. You know, there are situations in IPM where the bottom of the pyramid, the passive results, they were effective for a while, but we've gone past them. So what's the next layer? And I think you can use sprays like those essential oil sprays, insecticidal soaps that are sprays and are effective, but they're not these horrific, you know, Avid or Azimax, um, more very serious pesticides that can be debatably a little bit dangerous to be exposed to. How about spider mites? Talk to us about them next. You know, what are they? How do you prevent them? And how do you deal with a full-blown infestation? Yeah, so spider mites for me are really one that's like not terrible, terribly difficult to deal with. Um, they're really one that's like, they're, it's frustrating, but if you train your eye, you will see stippling like really early on, and then you'll be able to target those hot spots uh, if they occur past your initial levels of defense. Uh, you'll be able to target them quickly and eradicate them pretty quickly. So spider mites, and typically we'll be t we're talking about red spotted spider mites, are really uh, incredibly common pests. And what you want to look out for for them is, as I said, that stippling and also their waste on the plants. So when you look through your grow, you want to note stippling is little yellow dots along the surface of the plant uh, of the surface of the leaves. So it's the result of on the on the underside a spider mite or an aphid rasping away, sucking the uh, moisture out of that leaf in that spot. And then you'll also might see a sort of a sticky looking little shiny um, little dots around the leaves as well, which will be an example of their, um, their waste. So one thing to note that's frustrating about spider mites and that comes up a lot as well with thrips is that um, they do have the ability to asexually reproduce. So typically they lay eggs and then males come and fertilize the eggs and that's how they reproduce. But they have sort of a secondary mechanism where a non-fertilized egg can hatch. It'll just only hatch into, I believe they only hatch into males or they only hatch into females. I'm not sure exactly which, but the fertilized eggs are able to hatch. Um, so it's a situation where if one survives, you know, and it's a female, it's going to lay an egg, lay eggs and continue to operate. So I would really say, um, you know, one of the early defense layers is uh, just physically protecting your environment, quarantining. You know, the question is, how are they getting into your environment if it is carefully sealed? I know there are a lot of situations where it can't be fully sealed. But if it's an indoor or a well-sealed greenhouse, how are they coming in? The answer is either in clones or new cultivars you're bringing in or really on, on us. You know, we are the big vehicle that they come in on, especially, you know, if your dog, you take your dog for a hike and he's running around and then you come and pet him. It's that is just that's the way. Um, so I would say having grow specific clothes, you know, not going directly from a hike directly in to take care of things, uh, just prevent them in the first place. Uh, and then we can talk about actively fighting them um, sort of if we have to go up that next stage of the pyramid. Yeah, I know a couple of things would be to change the environment. Talk about making it colder, right? They thrive in hot environments, making it more windy. Maybe it's harder for them to actually, you know, congregate around in your canopy right. if it's it's windier. Predator mites as well, right? So can you talk yeah. about them a little bit? Yeah, predator mites are really excellent. And I've seen some situations where people will say they want to stippling, but they'll notice mites. And they'll be like, oh, I'm infested. What is this crazy thing? And it's like, no, they're those are friendly. They're just helpful little bugs. So predatory mites, and as well as obviously the classic is ladybugs. Um, and the real, um, the one is a cucumis um, mites is a, is a common one, but there's you know, many species of special little mites that you can get that will just, just really eat those up. Uh, this is where we get into, if you look at 
an IPM system and you say, here's everything that I have at my disposal, um, you might say, okay, let's just throw everything throw everything we can at them. Um, but that comes into negative synergies. If you are to deploy these beneficial uh, beneficial mites, you have to then stop deploying other uh, other pesticides that may well kill uh, kill your beneficial uh, insects. And to, to what you were saying about temperature and um, humidity, the same thing will be the case on your predatory mites. So they'll, they'll die or they'll be reduced just as much if you have cold nights. Um, but really temperature control is such a beneficial, like just passive way to deal with this. This is sort of why we see in Northern California, you would expect like, oh, these should be covered in, in spider mites, right? But often you have those really cold, foggy mornings that come in and it just reduces their ability to reproduce really drastically and, and naturally fights them off. Um, but certainly but I'm a big fan of beneficials. I think sort of the pyramid of IPM is like, just passive defense and then scouting and active defense, like sort of first stage active defense, which is I'm going to deploy some, some spider mites and then, you know, a little more or some, some, uh, some beneficial mites or some ladybugs, a little bit more active. I'm going to deploy some insecticidal soaps, some chemicals that I feel are safe. Um, and then the last resort, you know, the tip of the pyramid is, you know, I'm going to use some, some debatably some, some pretty bad stuff. Um, one thing I would note here is that uh, I think an often overlooked approach to stopping something like spider mites, this is not an approach that will work for something like fungus gnats because they're living in the soil, but something like for spider mites, you can use a bait plant, um, which I think it's a really, have you ever had experience with using a bait plant? No. Uh, so it's, you got to ask yourself, like if, if the spider mite has a series of five different plants, which ones is it going to go to first? And it'll typically target, you know, just like we have a preferred fruit that we'll go after, spider mites have preferred plants. So there's a lot of um, plants that you can use to specifically to attract them. And then if you're not going to consume that plant, you can use really harsh uh, chemicals. You can impregnate it with uh, chemicals that you would certainly not want to use for uh, consuming the produce, but you can just have it as a bait plant where the spider mites go there and they get, uh, they consume some, some serious, uh, serious chemicals. I think bean plants are a really common one for, uh, for spider mites, but it's just an often overlooked approach. I think people are concerned about like, they, I don't want to put something that attracts pests into my, into my grow, but uh, it's an interesting approach if, uh, if you don't want to, if you don't want to go to spraying chemicals directly. Yeah, that is an interesting approach and something that I, I assume that a lot of people don't think of that they can do. So yeah, thanks for pointing that one out. Let's go over one more. I want to go over thrips. What are thrips? Mm -hmm. How do you prevent them? And how do you deal with an infestation if it were to happen? Yeah, a frustrating one. So another that has the um, the lack of uh, or the, the ability to asexually reproduce. Um, it's such a great defense mechanism that they have where they just, their non-fertilized eggs will still reproduce. So thrips are one that just, I've had really frustrating experiences with thrips where they just refuse to leave. Um, I think it can be a bit overblown if you have one to two thrips and you're keeping that population down, it's not going to be a big issue. They're not as incredibly harmful as other insects, but if a population grows, they are a serious harm. So I would say if a big population pops up, you know, I, I would have a, I would have an intralight set up so that it would be consistently damaging them, but say it got unplugged or whatever, um, you're going to need to actively uh, actively fight against them. Uh, there are, I would say, 
beneficial insects if you can apply them. You know, they're very easily targeted um, by various predators like uh, green lace wings will just have a field day, especially if you take care of them. If you're aware that you're growing your crops, but you're also growing your green lace wings to fight thrips, um, you'll have really good luck with uh, with defeating them with those beneficials. But if you can't, I would move up to a next level. If, if you just can't get rid of these thrips, I would consider uh, one thing that we haven't discussed is a uh, pH balancing of leaf surfaces. You can just go ahead and go in and either spray with uh, sulfur or um, use a sulfur burner in a greenhouse, for example, or a larger facility to just mess up the pH of the surface of those leaves so they can no longer, uh, can no longer live. Um, and then the other things that I would look at is, you know, uh, insecticidal soaps, the things that we were discussing, like essential oil uh, concoctions, you can make these yourself or you can purchase them like green cleaner or, um, uh, or, you know, trusting neem oil. But I think uh, these are, you might get to a point where you don't want to go to really powerful chemicals, but you need to physically apply a chemical, but it's not as effective as the really powerful chemicals. So you have to apply more of it and at a greater rate. And I think it's easy to get locked into the situation where you're like, I, I refuse to apply this really this chemical that I feel may be harmful. It's uh, really powerful. So I'm going to go one step down, but I have to apply it a lot. And the, 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 the fault will be a lack of consistency. The thing will be like you just missed one application and that's enough. You know, it'll be like over over years, you'll be applying it every two weeks, but every six weeks you'll miss a treatment. And it'll just be a perpetual thing. So I would say when you're using these active uh, active approaches that aren't necessarily incredibly efficient but still work pretty well, just be very consistent while always keeping in mind the lower levels of the IPM pyramid, sealing your environment, consistent passive approaches to protecting your plants, making sure there's not an influx of new plants or of new pests. Yeah, I think that's some really good advice. What other advice do you have for maybe some new gardeners, brand new to the game? Is there anything else you could tell them? Well, I would really say, um, like, I, you know, I don't want to repeat myself too much, but I would say you need to approach this as, as holistic. Um, I think it's very easy to be like, I love, I'm so excited to grow a plant, to harvest it. You know, I'm looking at what I can feed it. I'm watching it grow. I'm very happy. And then a pest comes in and it's like, that wasn't even in your in your worldview that you would get a pest infestation and you're shocked by it and then you're scrambling to chase it you need to look at this as a holistic thing you are growing a plant that is you know has the genetic capability to convert sunlight into a beneficial food source everyone's interested in it not just humans you know one uh phrase that i love is that when you're you're creating a perfect environment for your plants you're also creating a perfect environment for their pests so you just need to be holistic and view this, include IPM and include the pests that are going to be coming in, in your mindset from day one, and you'll just be so much more prepared. It's all about passive defense, consistent passive protection so that you're not, you just never want to scramble to protect these. So, And that applies in other ways as well um, to things like fertilization. You don't want to notice that you have a deficiency and fight to fix it. You want to just view the entire picture at once and not have these issues crop up. And I would say, you know, just don't be scared, dig into it. You know, everybody, everybody has uh, lots of dead plants in their hands. It's okay. It's a, uh, it's a great hobby. So dig in. 
One thing that interests me is upcoming technologies. You talked about that a little bit, you know, with the intralight. Did you want to get deeper into the intralight? Is there any other upcoming technologies that relate to combating pests or pathogens? Yeah, so there's a lot of new crop protection technologies coming on coming onto the field. So obviously I'm a big proponent of intralight where we use LEDs to just flash a little 60-second burst of pesticide light every 24 hours. Where this can be properly applied, it's going to be a really beneficial, easy way for you to protect your crops. Beyond that, you know, that's a situation where we're utilizing the new technology of LEDs to produce a very specific wavelength. That's that's a very new, newly available thing to humans. Um, there's a lot of other new technologies that are coming onto the fore. You know, we're seeing a lot of agricultural robotics that won't be so applicable in the home garden for many decades, but uh, there's really incredible technology, you know, using machine learning and uh, a, a visual AI to detect um, for example, weeds in a field um, and zap it with a little laser just to just to kill it before it comes up or even zap it with a little shoot of a, a little spray of herbicide instead of covering the whole field, cover that little one in, uh, one in itself. Um, you mentioned the enzymatic um, uh, uh, mammoth enzymatic um, pesticide. There are some there's some really interesting things coming forward with, you know, specifically choosing special enzymes and they are just incredibly powerful. I mean, imagine when we're talking about something like a, um, a predatory mite or a ladybug, what's it doing? You know, it's hungry. It goes in there, it consumes it. And it's the same with the enzymes, but on a, on a micro, micro, microscopic scale, um, they're hungry little, <laughs> little molecules that just consume things. So, uh, the problem with them is shelf life really, and is how long they last on the surface of the leaf. So as there's new developments there, we're going to see some really impressive, uh, enzymatic approaches. Things like t just the tiniest amount of enzymes for a whole acre of agriculture. That's one that I'm very excited about, but uh, there, there, there's a lot on the horizon. That's awesome. That yeah, sounds like it's going to make things a lot easier in the future for the gardener. So mm -hmm. cool. Well, we could sit here and talk on and on about more and more pests, but we're running out of time here. So might have to save that for part two, potentially but wrapping things up. How can the listeners find you and what do you have upcoming in the future? Yeah, well, I would say the best place is just to go to intralight.co and uh, you can check out, you know, that really is uh, w the main thing that I'm working on is delivering a new cutting edge pesticidal technology to people at a really uh, affordable level um, to reduce their long term crop protection expenses, reduce the stress and reduce having to s seek out pests and constantly apply things. You know, I just want to give you another and I want to add to the bottom of the um, IPM pyramid and just say, here's another passive treatment that you can use. Um, so that's the best place to find me. What we have coming up is simply new form factors, because I say, if you give me a, a spider mite or a thrip in a box, I can, I can kill it anytime with our technology. It's very easy. The question is plants are very complicated. Everyone's growing in a different way. You know, how do we deliver that light to the most, uh, the largest surface of the plant? and it requires various form factors. So what we have coming up is new form factors uh, for vertical farming, for cloning shelves, uh, mobile form factors, and, uh, and things like this. Awesome, so very exciting. Simon, this has been very insightful. Thank you so much for coming on today. I'll definitely have a link to Intralight down in the YouTube description section below. Also throw up your Instagram in there. I know you have an Instagram page, so I'll put that there. Give him a follow on Instagram. And if you enjoyed this episode, click that thumbs up. 
Also, subscribe to the channel if you haven't already. Every single weekend, I'm releasing a new Garden Talk podcast episode, and I would love for you to tune into future episodes. Simon, once again, thanks so much. This is this is awesome. We might have to do a part two if you're available sometime in the future because I know there's just it seems like you've got so much knowledge that you're able to uh, expel here, and I know my audience is going to get a lot of value from it. So, thank you once again. Thanks so much for having me, and uh, yeah, let's do a part two. I'm sure there'll be a new virus coming onto the scene, you know, that we have to deal with. (laughs) All right. Peace out, everyone. Catch you in the next episode.